This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today we are talking to Erica Hayasaki, who wrote Somewhere Sisters, a story of adoption, identity, and the meaning of family, uh, which was released on October 11th by Algonquin Books. Erica is the author of The Death Class. She's a former 2021-22 Knight Wallace Reporting Fellow and a 2018 Alicia Patterson Fellow. She has received awards from the Association of Sunday Feature Editors, the Society for Features, Journalism, and the American Society of Newspaper Editors. Erica, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Somewhere, sisters, it's not just a story of adoption. It's also a story about twins. Exactly. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the book, and we'll see where that takes us. Sure. So I, um, I'm a mother of twins, um, identical twin boys. And five years ago, my twins came into my life. I gave birth to twins and I started asking questions that I had long wondered about around nature and nurture and did some reporting on twin research um, and encountered a twin researcher out here in California, Nancy Segal, who runs the Twin Studies Center at um, Cal State Fullerton. And, you know, I, I wrote a story on some work around the twin research. And she introduced me to various twins around the country. And I was particularly drawn to this pair of twins who grew up in, well, they grew up in their entirely different circumstances. They were mm. both born in Vietnam and their mother could not care for them. So one of the twins, her name was uh, Lon, ended up in an um, orphanage and, in Vietnam. And the other twin, Ha ended up being raised by her aunt, her biological aunt, and her aunt's partner in a village in Vietnam. And the twin who ended up in the orphanage was adopted by a white American family in the Midwest, not far from where I had um, lived uh, part of my life in the Midwest growing up. And she was adopted along with another child from this orphanage, also Vietnamese, um, and renamed Isabella. And so, so that was how they separated, but they eventually did come together. And that was a story that I became very interested in. And it led me into this world of adoption history and studies and also twin research. So you said they eventually were reunited, but after how many years? They spent most of their lives apart. So they were reunited when they were 13. And Mm -hmm. they're now in their mid-20s and they've graduated college. And, you know, not to give it all away, but they (laughs) are living together. Well, yeah, they're together. They went to college together. But that was a long journey. And so I think, like, we we sometimes see twin research or twin reunions, right, on TV. And it's very emotional. And then, you know, it sort of seems like one twin will say, you know, half of me was missing forever. And this is like, I'm complete now. And especially if you're identical twins, you would think, Oh, it's like my, you know, my doppelganger. And I think what's interesting about the story is that that's not necessarily the case. Like the reunion was, it was complicated and, and not easy. And even just bonding with each other, they didn't even speak the same language. Like one was raised Catholic and the other Buddhist, you know, they had to learn how to communicate. One was raised in America with, you know, Starbucks and, you know, all the iPhones. And the other was raised in a village that didn't, you know, have, like regular electricity and they washed their clothes in the river and they like got their food from the land. Totally different environment. 
you stole my question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I keep talking about it. There are differences. In <laughs> well, and that's the fact that you said that this, this was not like uh, the typical fairy tale story. Oh, hey, we're reunited and everything is, is wonderful. This story sounds like there, you know, obviously were very uh, clear uh, hurdles that they had to cross to, well, just in coming back together. How, as you said, we always see these twin stories that, you know, it's like, oh, finally we're reunited. Mm-hmm. How often is that really uh, just the, the the happy ending that we see? Yeah, I mean, I think with all reunions and from, from what I have learned also through just the research, which there is a lot of research on adoption in this book, the history of adoption from Vietnam and even just in the U.S. and overseas. But I talked to a lot of adoptees who were like maybe psychologists or historians or um, activists or just, you know, having their own podcasts. And they often talk to me about how reunion, which you'd think from TV can be this beautiful, completing moment in somebody's life, you know, can be traumatic and and can lead to all these other kinds of rippling circumstances that maybe brings in other family members that you maybe weren't ready to meet or they weren't ready to, ready to meet you or they have trauma because the very act of relinquishing a child you know that comes with all kinds of pain and family that's involved grandmothers so there's a lot of scenes in the book that are hard to read i think and they're mm-hmm. Experiences of the people involved, but it does break down that kind of maybe myth that we have that you know reunion will make everything better, and there's like this sort of fantasy narrative of like reunion making people's lives finally come together and complete, when in fact it can make it really really complicated and sometimes painful and hard in different ways. And you can also have the good, so that's the complicated part. There's the good and there's the hard. In this case, Lon was adopted by a white family and grew up more or less in, you know, white American society. Um, So I would imagine, well, first of all, that that alone, an Asian child uh, being adopted by a a white family has its own set of uh, uh, challenges, I would imagine. And then Ha is the uh, the other child. Ha grew up with a a relative uh, in her home country. Was there, did uh, Lon have any kind of feeling that she really missed out on uh, that part of her heritage once once she uh, met her sister? That's a good question. I think that's, it's more complicated to answer because you actually, as you read the book, you're, you're going to feel all kinds of ways about it, I think, because, um, we have these scenes of Ha growing up in Vietnam and she is not wealthy. She is technically in a poor family, you know, but she always described her life so beautifully, so much love and living off the land, playing with dirt, like swinging on a homemade swing under the moon. It just sounds really nice <laughs> when you hear, hear it compared to, and then of course, um, Lon, Isabella, who grew up with her um, adopted sister, and there are other siblings who were not adopted, but they were older. She grew up, you know, in this wealthy suburb. She was a minority, and so there was a lot of, um, there was unfortunately bullying that happened and, you know, kind of 
questions around identity and feeling othered. Um, but she did have this loving family and she had a lot of uh, access to things like they had Barbie dolls, which was kind of funny because they would have these elaborate Barbie doll houses and things and princess rooms and they would like rip the heads off of the Barbie dolls and flush them down the toilet. But they, you know, they had so much fun in their lives with their dogs and but they did encounter um, outside of the family, not within, because the, the family always loved them as they were, but, you know, in the schools and things, um, bullying and, and feelings of, you know, just alienation and kind of confusion around that, which I could relate to because I grew up in the Midwest and I'm Asian American and my mom is white and I'm not adopted, but I certainly had gone through a lot of that too. Yeah, the the, the American experience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's unfortunately common. In- yeah, yeah. No, think things uh, things have not uh, changed very much over the two hundred plus years that we've uh, had this country around. Yeah, it's kind of surprising because uh, they're of a different generation of me. You know, like decades removed and still. Encounter. Sure, sure. But uh, <laughs> well, bullying and racism are still right. kind of. Uh, <laughs> I know, not surprising. Actually. <laughs> Yeah, def- definitely. Uh, that uh, that vi- those vintages are the same. Um, yeah. How did the citizenship situation work out for for these sisters? Yeah, that's a great question. So, the one thing that you know I learned through the reporting. So the girl, the sisters, the twins are reunited at thirteen, but Ha continues to live in Vietnam and starts mm-hmm. to learn English and eventually decides that she wants to come to America to join her sister. And at that point, they're like um, 18. That's sort of when I I came into the picture afterwards and started interviewing them. So Ha is not a citizen. She is actually in Vietnam right now trying to renew her visa. Um, So the story of her coming to America is uh, pretty dramatic, too, because it was not easy for her. Isabella and her sister, who she was adopted with, they, you know, were born in Vietnam, adopted as young children to America, and and pretty much grew up believing that they were American citizens. Um, but there is this um, kind of loophole that has occurred with a lot of adoptees that who came from another country and came to America during a certain time period um, and thought that they were citizens, and suddenly grew up and became, you know, eighteen, and maybe they're trying to driver's licenses or whatever that might be and come to find out they're actually not citizens um mm. and that is what happened with isabella and um, olivia her her sister from who was also adopted they realized that they were not citizens and so what has happened with some of these cases there's been some quite famous cases um this is not with these sisters but um you know adoptees who maybe had a record for something um for whatever reason, uh, were deported to, for example, Korea, didn't speak the language, right? They were not born in Korea and, and have not, in one case, have not been able, you know, that's quite famous, as it's cited in the book, um, you know, has not been only allowed to come back and join their family. And there's a lot of cases, actually, unfortunately, of this, who maybe they have wives and children in the U.S., um, but not. and then in one case, they're was the young man who committed suicide when he um, was deported into, you know, uh, to Korea 
Um, so it is an incredibly painful story. Now the, the sisters were able to eventually get citizenship, but it opens up this discussion around um, why why would this happen? You know, why would the, you think you were a citizen and suddenly realize you're not? Where was the, you know, who, where were the people looking out for this and how could this? So there is something called the Adoptee Citizenship Act that has been um, moving legislation to try to make, to try to change this, but that's certainly a conversation that arises in the book. So, so that legislation ha has not passed, it's still in the works? So it recently added on to another piece of legislation and it's, which did pass, but there's still, um, it's not hundred percent finalized. So there's a chance that it could not, it could get taken out of this particular bill, for example. Um, so it's still an, it's still a question mark so, um, that's not fully yet resolved, but there are certainly adoptees. There's a group called Adoptees for Justice that has been working really hard on this issue for years um, to try to to try to you know make sure that adoptees have citizenship. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Music and information from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on our Patreon support button to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. Okay, so this, this uh, brings up an interesting point. Uh, and especially considering <laughs> the way the the country is kind of split at the moment. Uh, mm -hmm. Recently, when uh, Roe Ro v. Wade was struck down, the, the implication was that, that adoptions within the U.S. would would certainly, uh, out of necessity, if nothing else, rise. So, do you think that would have an impact on how many foreign adoptions? would occur is the the death of roe v wade something that's going to create a situation where it's either more difficult to do a foreign adoption or be basically become uh, uh sort of you know you're a pariah if you do that uh, because hey now we have to take care of uh these unwanted children in the united states right so that's also a complicated question the number of adoptions from overseas has gone down over the years and a lot of countries including vietnam and that's kind of part of the backdrop of the book too have in some cases shut down adoption at times throughout um the last couple of decades and that was because the sort of industry of adoption led to this demand issue supply and demand which is like a terrible way to phrase it when you're talking about children's lives right, right. Um, but that demand for children, for babies, for example, led to, in some cases, these illicit um, adoption rings where children were being, you know, removed from their families and their mothers and sometimes, you know, stolen uh, or if parents, if babies did not, or the mothers did not know that they were being, so it was very messy. And so for these reasons, a lot of that uh, transnational intercountry adoption has gone down. Okay, so then you get to the question about Roe versus Wade um, and the end of Roe. And, you know, after after that decision, you did see a lot of people saying, 
adoptions are going to, you know, skyrocket. There's going to be such a need. It doesn't, that doesn't necessarily ring true so far. Um, the, there is not necessarily evidence that, that there's going to be this skyrocketing number of uh, children that need to be adopted. But the question there, and I think the conversation that's important to have is, you know, a lot of adoptees have said and have pushed back against that narrative and they've said very clearly, look, adoption is not the answer to the end of abortion for all of these reasons that we're kind of laying out around the trauma of reunion, the trauma of separation, the, the system that has been inherently flawed throughout history, you know, without these checks and balances and, you know, scandals and, and the reasons children are sometimes removed um, have been very problematic, you know. Um, and so there's a lot of pushback, I think, from the adoptee community that's very vocal on different forms of social media and through academia and um, in different areas of scholarship saying, like, hold on, let's slow down and, like, let's not say everybody needs to adopt now just because, you know, um, Roe versus Wade uh, was overturned. Like, it's, it's, that's not a reason to adopt, you know. Um, and so I think that that has made some of these conversations urgent, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have an impact on the inter-country adoptions because I think that's already been um, impacted too uh, for other reasons. As people read this book, what's one of the critical things you hope they take away from the story of these twins? I hope that people feel moved by their stories. That's one thing. I think that any story that involves characters, you want to feel some sort of empathy and compassion for the people that you're reading about, especially if they're real life people, and also understand that people are complex and flawed. And so it's a multifaceted story with lots of different characters in it and perspectives. And I sort of let all the different people in the story speak for themselves as much as possible. So I hope that they, you know, just feel like it's a good story, but I also are an engaging story. But I also hope that they come away and understand, for one, twin science also has a long, dark history of like mm -hmm. nature nurture. Is it genes or is it an environment? Is it genes or is it your environment? And that's like become this battle throughout history. And we know now that there's an interplay between both of these elements. You know, the environment does impact your genes, you know, and there's the randomness of chance that also is at play. So just because you have 100% of the same genes, like my twins do, like these twins do, does not mean you're going to turn out to be the same person at all. Um, and that seems obvious, but yet we have still debated that throughout history. But then when it comes to adoption, it's sort of similar, like it's been framed in, in a way that's, um, you know, a fantasy, a feel-good narrative, like twin reunion to everything is great and rosy and the end. And actually, like I think this story shows and also the many voices within it that um, it's much more complex. So before, you know, people start making decisions or um, based uh, to adopt based on like policies that have um, been created or based on things like the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you know, there, there needs to be the voices of adoptees in the conversation, like listening to them and hearing, hey, this is what my life was really like. And it, it's not that I'm saying it was a lot of adoptees said, you told me it's not that adoption gives you a better life, but it gives you a different life. And I think mm -hmm. that's something to think about. Um, because, you know, do we hold the standards of a better life um, to be, you know, what, you know, you're offered in America, which maybe is 
privilege and wealth and education, but also remembering that Paz's life in Vietnam was quite beautiful in her village, swinging like under the moon with a lot of love. <laughs> so it's a little bit more complicated than just black or white. As as the mom of twins, how what about this story of these two Vietnamese twins shocked you or uh, or surprised you? And, and how has it changed your thinking about your own children? It just has reaffirmed for me that genes are not destiny, <laughs> you know, and I think we know that, but, you know, we still seem to be fascinated and rightly so with these cases in history of twins, like the Jim twins who like they were both named Jim and they both married women who had the same name and they named their dogs the same and they named their um, kids the same and they had the same job and they were separated at birth, yet we're living these lives that seem so similar. And that's pretty incredible, but that's not standard. My twins live in the same house. They've been, you know, together every day for their whole lives since they were, you know, in my body. (laughs) And they're very, very different. And that's, they do have similarities. And like Nancy Seagal once told me, you know, uh, twins are a variation on a theme. So they might have these like similarities. They might look alike. People don't, can't tell them apart maybe, but we can. But these little moments in your non-shared environment, so your non-shared environment might be like one child is in another room and you're in this room or one's eating this and one is exposed to, you know, some teacher that really inspires them in a different way. Those things also matter to the development of who you are. And so I think that's always been, that's really interesting. So whether it's the twins in the book or my own twins, I think um, we have to really understand that. Um, and I think Ha puts that really nicely when she speaks about destiny and fate in the book, because she was, you know, was raised Buddhist and she believed in reincarnation and believes in it. And you come back and you have this kind of path that you're on, but she also believes that you have this power, this power to steer your path to. And so it's both. It's like you have this path you're on and you also have these decisions that you make that can steer that direction that you go in. And I think that that is a message of the book as well with the science and also the stories of sisters. And the book is Somewhere Sisters, a story of adoption, identity and the meaning of family. Uh, It is available now. Where can people find this book, Erica? Uh, you can find it at all the bookstores. You can go, um, I, one of my favorite independent bookstores is Del Canto Books. You can order it. Del Canto Books in Long Beach. That's an independent bookstore not far from me. So okay. I would say check them out. I'll get a link for that up with the podcast as well. Cool. Great. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts as we close out? No, I just, I thank you so much for having me and for having this conversation. People find it interesting. It's a pleasure, and thank you for being here today, Erica. Thank you. You're very welcome. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I am John Shannon.